0: of the morning to everyone hope you're all doing well this morning bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and ready for a good day in the Word of God I wonder if we really believe what we just sung I want God's way to be my way I sometimes wonder if we really really want God's way when we look at this chapter chapter 5 and by the way as we look at chapter 5 it's not implying that we have really done with chapters 1 2 and 3 Uh, We could spend all week, really, on chapters 1, 2, and 3, but uh, I said I wanted to get to chapter 25, and obviously (laughs) we have to speed up a little bit if we're going to do that. Uh, So I'd like to read two uh, short readings from chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, and then verses 11 to verse 22. So uh, Numbers 5, 1 through 7. It says, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel that they put out of the camp every leper, and everyone that hath an issue, and whoever is defiled by the dead. Both male and female shall you put out, without the camp shall you put them, that they defile not their camps in the midst whereof I dwell." And the children of Israel did so, and put them out without the camp. So the Lord spake unto Moses, uh, as the Lord spake unto Moses, so did the children of Israel. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, uh, what, when a man or a woman shall commit any sin that men commit to do a trespass against the Lord, and they, that person be guilty, then they shall confess their sin which they have done." And he shall recompense his trespass with the principle thereof, and add unto it the fifth part thereof, and give it unto him against whom he hath trespassed. Then verse 11, And the Lord spake to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, and say unto them, If any man's wife go aside and commit a trespass against him. And a man lie with her carnally, and it be hid from the eyes of her husband, and be kept close, and she be defiled, and there be no witness against her, neither she be taken with the manna, and the spirit of jealousy come upon him, and he be jealous of his wife, and she be defiled." Or if the spirit of jealousy come upon him and he be jealous of his wife and she be not defiled, then shall the man bring his wife to the priest and he shall bring her offering for her, the tenth part of an ephah of barley meal. He shall pour no oil upon it nor put frankincense thereon. It's an offering of jealousy, an offering of memorial, bringing iniquity, to remembrance, And the priest shall bring her near and set her before the Lord and the priest shall take holy water in an earthen vessel and of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle the priest shall take and put it into the water and the priest shall set the woman before the Lord and uncover the woman's head and put the offering of memorial in her hands which is the jealousy offering and the priest shall have in his hand the bitter water that causeth the curse." And the priest will charge her by an oath and say to the woman, If no man have lain with thee, and if thou hast not gone aside to uncleanness with another instead of thy husband, and be thou free from this bitter water that causeth the curse. But if thou hast gone aside to another... "'instead of thy husband, and if thou be defiled, "'and some man have lain with thee beside thine husband, "'then the priest shall charge the woman "'with an oath of cursing. "'And the priest shall say to the woman, "'The Lord make thee a curse and an oath among the people. "'When the Lord doth make thy thigh to rot "'and thy belly to swell, and this water that causeth the curse "'shall go into thy bowels to make thy belly to swell "'and thy thigh to rot.'" and the woman shall say, Amen, Amen. And we say, Amen. I want to tell you, uh, this is not an easy passage, uh, as you can see, uh, but it's a very instructive passage. But I want to just, by way of background, say something here. The key verse is verse 3 to this whole chapter. If you really want to understand this chapter, verse 3 helps us. And the idea is this, uh, that the the various acts of discipline that need to take place in this chapter are all because of one reason. It says, verse 3, Both male and female shall you put out without the camp, shall you put them, that they defile not their camps. And here's the key phrase. In the midst whereof I dwell. Do you get that? In other words, the reason we need to be involved in discipline is because... A holy God dwells in the midst. That's why. Okay? God, holy God, lived in their midst. And so that's why they must deal with these issues and and act upon them because God dwelt in their midst. Now, let me just give you some other references that I think are very important um, as we think about this together. Uh, And I'll just read them. You can make a note of them, but I'm not going to ask you to turn to them uh, for sake of time. Psalm 89 verse 7 says this, God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be had in reverence of all them that are about him. Now, yesterday, Joe said that he felt that we have lost the fear of God. I, I concur with my brother's statement. I believe, I'm not just saying in society in general, and that's obvious. I am saying we in the church have lost the fear of God. In fact, I've had people say to me, well, that's Old Testament. In other words, just dismissing it with a stroke, you know? In other words, uh, Old Testament, of course they feared God. I mean, he did all these things. And, uh, but we're in the New Testament now, and it's all buddy buddy, and, and we, just, we can do whatever we like, really, you know? Well, is that really true? I want just ask you now. I'm going to ask you to turn to these scriptures, okay? These two. Acts 9 31. Now, as far as last time I uh, heard, uh, Acts is in the New Testament. Do you think that's. Am I correct in saying that? Yeah, I think I am, right? Acts 9 31. Acts 9.31 says this, Then had the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria and were edified, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost were multiplied. The New Testament churches were walking in the fear of the Lord. you know why they were walking in the fear of the Lord? Because in Acts chapter 5, there was a couple uh, in the church in Jerusalem called Ananias and Sapphira. Sapphira and um, and their, only, their only guilt was that they were acting like hypocrites. They pretended to be more generous in their giving than they really were. And they were struck dead. Can you imagine if God dealt with hypocrites in the assembly today like He did in Acts chapter 5? Those people who pretend to be more spiritual than they really are. I don't think I'd be speaking to too many people and I don't think you'd have a speaker either. Because haven't we all pretended to be more spiritual than we really are? So there's no wonder they walked in the fear of the Lord. In fact, it says that nobody dared join them except those that were real deal. <laughs> they came, but everybody else realized this is a holy God dwelling amidst, amidst the people who are living lives of holiness. And uh, it wasn't kind of casual, thank you, everything's fine. Now look at Second Corinthians. Again, as far as I remember, Second Corinthians is also a New Testament book. Uh, And I'm not being facetious, but I want to tell you that the fear of God is not just an Old Testament concept. 2 Corinthians 7, and there are other scriptures I could turn to in the New Testament, but I'm just, for sake of time, uh, just picking at random two verses. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1. says this, having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Okay, New Testament, right? Perfecting holiness. And we could go on, epistle to the Hebrews. Uh, I believe right, written to Christians. Our God is a consuming fire. That's pretty serious, isn't it? He's a holy God. He hasn't lost any of His holiness. Calvary did not mitigate the holiness of God. It it, it established the holiness of God. That's how serious he thinks about sin, that he would do that to his son. God is holy. And, And there's so many scriptures that would emphasize this. Psalm 93, verse 5, "...Thy testimonies are very sure holiness becometh thine house, O Lord, forever." You get that? Holiness is fitting for your house forever. Not just back here in the book of Numbers, but now in the New Testament, the church is the house of God and holiness is still fitting for God's house, isn't it? Why? Because a holy God still dwells amidst his people. We said that the other day, First Corinthians 3, verse 16. Know ye not that ye, plural, are the temple of God? When we come together, we are the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. Okay, so you get where my drift here. Nothing's changed. God's holiness is still the same. 1 Corinthians 5.13, again, I'll just uh, quote it to you. Put them that are without, but them that are without, God judgeth. Therefore, put away from among yourselves that Wicked person. Now we've been talking uh, individually as groups uh, in these sessions a little bit about revival, and I want to just say something that that historically, revival is always connected with the people of God. You can't revive something that has never had life in the first place. So it's not speaking about the unsaved. Revival is amongst God's people. And what happens in genuine revival is that God's people once again get serious about dealing with sin amongst them, and they're serious about holiness, and and they, they confess their sin, they deal with their sin, there's brokenness over their sin, and what happens is that the people of God are actually, for the first time perhaps in a long time, actually living like saints. And then the world looks on and says, Wow, look at these people. You see? And then the gospel begins to spread to others because they see authentic Christianity. And you see, the biggest complaint that people have about Christians is this. I'm going to quote it and you're going to say, I know exactly what you mean. What they say is this you're just a bunch of, what's the word? Hypocrites, right? And often they have justification. Last week I was with somebody and their daughter was married, has a little girl. And the husband, in the same church, wasn't an assembly, comes home and says, I don't love you anymore, I'm out. And then he finds a new girlfriend and shows up at the same church with the girlfriend and nobody wants to discipline this man. In fact, he's welcome with open arms as well as his new woman. And here's this, girl, this woman, the first, <laughs> his wife with a little girl and mom and dad. In the church beside themselves, because this man's welcome with open arms, and nobody wants to deal with the issue. And what I'm saying is, we just sung, I want your way, O Lord. You know, I want God's way, not my way. Well, God's way is to deal with that man. Not we just we're not we don't want to get rid of him. That's not what discipline's about. What we want is to bring the man to repentance and restoration. And you're never going to bring him to repentance and restoration if you just assume that what he's doing is okay and legitimate and kind of pat him on the back and say, we're glad you're here, brother. That's never going to make him think about his sin, is it? And so all I'm saying is that, that God is still holy. And if we really want revival, then we must be serious about dealing with sin. Uh, amongst the church, corporately because the Holy One still dwells in our midst. Now, originally, um, the reason for these instructions may well have been sanitary. In other words, you don't want a leper in the camp because what happens is leprosy spreads, okay? We don't want somebody with an issue because people that have an issue, in other words, stuff's coming out of various offices that shouldn't be, and uh, it, it spreads disease, Okay, so real, realistically, originally, these instructions were for sanitary purposes as much as anything else. But there is a spiritual lesson to be learned as well. In fact, Numbers 5 and number 6 kind of go together, because number 6 is what we call the Nazarite's vow. And I just wish we had two weeks here, because uh, there's so much I want to tell you about the book of Numbers that we're not going to get into. But there's the two sides of holiness in chapter 5 and chapter 6. Holiness has the idea of being set apart or separated. And there's two sides. To be separated from, which is chapter 5. Separated from defilement, from evil. We need to be separate people. You know, that's not popular anymore to teach on separation. It's not saying we're supposed to be taken out of the world, but we're not supposed to be like the world. We're in it, but not of it. Uh, Our Lord Jesus... There never was a more separated life. And it didn't mean that he wasn't daily in contact with sinful people, but it wasn't that he wanted to become like them and join their club and act like them. It was that he wanted to raise them up out of where they were to where he was. So we're not talking about isolation when we talk about separation. But we're talking about being separated from sin as a lifestyle. We don't live that way. We don't act that way. We're different. We're set apart from these things. And then the Nazarite's vow is somebody who's set apart to God. He wants to, he's so in love with God, he makes vows that God is going to be absolutely first above other relationship, above his own pleasure, above his, how he looks. It was God is first. And that's true separation. It's from we put away things that we shouldn't be doing and it's separation to God and, and a determination to live for Him and serve Him and put Him first in our lives. So as we look at uh, these, this chapter, um, first thing we could say is that uh, He's a holy God that demands purity. And the first thing we're going to look at in verses 1-4 through four is certain things that have to be put out of the camp. And by the way, it's a corporate activity. In other words, they, the people of Israel, were commanded to put the leper outside the camp, to put the person with an issue outside the camp, to put the person who was defiled by the dead outside the camp. And it was corporate. It was, it was the responsibility of all the people of God. And, and that would be an equivalent of church discipline in the New Testament. Church discipline is corporate. It has to be corporate. And by the way, um, one of the problems why we have problems disciplining is we have problems with reception. Assembly receives corporately somebody into the assembly, and then if they are in sin, they put them away corporately, and it has to be corporate for it to be working. In other words, the whole assembly have to agree that we cannot allow this person to be part of our fellowship and treat him as a brother, because he's acting in an unbrotherly way. He's w- walking in known sin. And the idea is to bring him to repentance, restoration, and of course, that's a whole message in itself is how to do church discipline. But the idea is simply it's a corporate action. And, and we see this here. Verse 2 Command the children of Israel that they put out of the camp every leper. So, what are we talking about when we talk about a leper? By the way, the interesting thing is that, that these three, the leper, Uh, the one who has an issue and the one who's defiled by the dead, each of these three, the Lord Jesus dealt with individually, didn't he? He touched the leper and cleansed them. There was a woman who had an issue of blood for 12 years. She touched him and she was immediately healed. And then there was several occasions where the Lord Jesus took somebody who was dead and raised them back to life which is just wonderful, and that's a, a whole another message. But it's a beautiful thought, isn't it? That the very things that they were to put out, the Lord Jesus was able to restore. And we still believe in church discipline, the Lord Jesus is able to restore and bring back. And it's wonderful when you see it. And I have witnessed it. Broken individuals who have dealt with their sin have come back and been received back into the assembly. And I want to tell you something, actually putting somebody away is actually easier than bringing them back. Because sometimes the saints are suspicious and they wonder, is he really cured? You know, <laughs> we're not quite sure we want to welcome him back. Sometimes that's more of our problem, is receiving him back after they've been disciplined and have repented. So, basically, uh, what we're talking about with leprosy. Well, leprosy in the Old Testament is a picture of sin. But it's, it's sin that is broken out and is obvious. In other words, in, in our gathering here today, we're all sinners. You know, in Old Testament terms, we're all lepers. But, but we're dealing with it on an ongoing basis, right? Self-judgment, I hope, is taking place. In other words, as sin comes into my life, I have to deal, it, deal with it in self-judgment. God says if we judge ourselves, we wouldn't be judged, right? There's no need for God to judge us if we're judging ourselves. So, so uh, everybody's lepers, but are we dealing with it personally? Uh, are we keeping clean? I mean, one of the reasons you get leprosy is, is to do with hygiene. Right? Are we keeping clean, spiritually? It's because we all have the potential to be lepers. But here's somebody who isn't working on the base of self-judgment, and their sin has broken out and is obvious to everybody. Just one look at a leper, you know he's a leper. Okay. In First Corinthians 5, everybody knew this man was having a relationship which was contrary to to even what unbelievers considered to be right and appropriate. He was involved in an incestual relationship. And everybody knew it. It was broken out, right? It was so obvious. And there are sins that are so obvious that they have to be dealt with, just like the leper, right? And so they have these, these obvious sins that everybody can see, and even the unsaved can see it, must be put out of the camp. By the way, I don't want to get sidetracked, but isn't it wonderful that our Lord Jesus was put outside the camp <laughs> and and was made the leper, made to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Uh, I, it's so easy to get sidetracked. Forgive me, but I mean, <laughs> but so the idea of the leper, it sins broken out. It's obvious he's put outside the camp, and they did it. I, I want you to notice that that they they took God's instructions seriously and they acted on it. And uh, the first of all, the children of Israel did so and put them out without the camp. And the Lord spake to Moses, so, so, as the Lord spoke to Moses, so did the children of Israel. Folks, um, we, we, we all, I want to just say this again, we all have issues with sin. There's not a person in this in this auditorium that does not have a sin problem because <laughs> we have a sin nature. But God wants us to judge our sin so that the assembly doesn't have to judge it and God doesn't have to judge it, right? We need to do that. Are you dealing with sin in your life? As God brings it to your attention, are you dealing with it? And, and, and self-judgment precludes God's judgment. God's judgment. Okay, the next one is everyone that has an issue. That That is, a uh, defiling influence is emanating from them. Uh, there's no self-control. We'd say they're incontinent. It actually tells us one of the characteristics of about the last days is that people will be uh, incontinent. They'll be without self-control. And we see that, don't we, in our society. People have just no self-control whatsoever. And so here's somebody, and um, they, they, they're from them is a defiling influence and it's just coming out all the time and it's affecting the whole assembly uh, there's lots of ways you can defile the assembly sometimes it can be with false doctrine Here, somebody comes in and they've got their little agenda and they want to push their agenda and they and they're having a defiling influence and they're affecting people and listen we got to put them outside the assembly because they're causing a tremendous disturbance until they repent. You know, these are the kind of things we've got to deal with. And, and so, uh, are we like that? Are we somebody who is without control and we're, we're having a def, uh, defiling influence? And then the third one is those that are defiled by the dead. Now, interestingly enough, in the book of Numbers, there is more reference to being defiled by the dead than in any other book in the Old Testament. And of course, the reason is that they're dying off at a 100 a day. It's very easy to be defiled by the dead, Right? Two and a half million people, all these these 603,000, 20 years and upwards, well, all those that that had unbelief are all going to die in the wilderness. And so you've got, for instance, uh, you've got it here... Uh, the Nazarite in chapter 6, his vow is broken if he comes into contact with a dead person. And so he's got to start all over again. Uh, you've got chapter 9. A guy wants to keep the Passover, but he, he can't because he's defiled by a dead person. What am I going to do here? Uh, you've got the beautiful picture of the red heifer, and the whole point of the red heifer is people that are being defiled by the dead. So how, can, how, do, how does that uh, apply to us? A lot of people who are being defiled by the dead... They're coming under the influence of dead people and it's affecting them spiritually. So here's a young man. His name's Lance Latham. He grows up in a Christian home, memorizes tons of scripture, loves the Lord. I mean, just a real fine young man. wants to go to seminary, goes to his denominational seminary and he comes under the influence of dead people, professors, but not possessors, and and almost destroy his faith with their, their theories and their ideas and their uh, exalting themselves above the Scriptures rather than allowing the Scriptures to judge them. They're sitting in judgment on the Word of God. And So this fellow, Lansby them. manages to survive the ordeal, comes out of it, and he starts the Awana movement. You've heard of the Awana clubs to get kids memorizing Scripture. You know why he wants to do it? To protect them if they ever go to seminary. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? That's, that was behi- that's the story behind it. So they know the Word of God so well that dead people are not going to influence them. Today, it could be you're defiled by the dead because you're listening to Oprah Winfrey more than you are reading your Bible or Dr. Phil or whoever it is. Isn't it easy to be defiled by the dead? If we're getting all of our input and all our data from dead people, it's going to affect your spiritual life, big time. And uh, we, need to, we need to get our food from the living, not the dead. Those that are alive spiritually, not dead people. By the way, uh, there's another defiling aspect of the dead. Look at Revelation 3, verse 1. Revelation 3, verse 1. Dead churches can do this to us too, you know. Revelation 3, verse 1. <clears throat> to the angel of the church in Sardis write these things, saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know thy works that thou hast a name that thou livest and are dead. Sounds like a lot of assemblies that I visit. They have a name that they're alive, but there's a deadness hanging over it. You ever been in a place like that? You know, you go to the Lord's Supper and and um, long awkward silences, and uh, you know, just somebody gets up to fill the vacuum and gives out their favorite hymn, and and there's just a deadness about the place. You know, it's interesting that in the seven churches, the solution, by the way, to the problem of the seven churches is usually given in the in the introductory vision of the glorified christ in other words our problems are solved by the risen christ that's where the problem is solved and in this case he says i'm the one that has the seven spirits of god in his right hand and of course seven is the number of fullness and completeness and what a dead church needs is the spirit of god in full supply right isn't he the one that brings life in death, deadness? And what, what we're saying, and, and this is my burden. I, you, I said the other day, I am burdened about assemblies because I think we have New Testament principles and we lack New Testament power. You look at the book of Acts, and 50 times in the book of Acts, the person of the Holy Spirit is mentioned. And they turned the world upside down and what's happened is you see our theology we're dispensational and, I, and that's right dispensationalism is the right way to view the word of god if you don't see a distinction between church and israel you're going to get into a mess it's very helpful but what we said is that pentecost you know kind of comes and there's in many of our assemblies there's never going to be another pentecost because there'll never be another passover or calvary and that's right not going to be another pentecost And so the implication we draw is that we don't want any further outpourings of the Holy Spirit amongst us because we got everything we needed on the day of Pentecost. Well, let me tell you something. Acts 4 comes after Acts 2, does it not? I mean, I'm I'm making it simple for you today, right? I mean, these are pretty simple things. Acts 2 comes after Acts 4. Everybody can agree with that. (laughs) Acts 4, they pray for boldness, and it says the place where they prayed was shaken and every one of them were filled with the spirit of god and they preached the world with boldness so you have after pentecost an outpouring of the spirit on those same believers that were there at pentecost in fresh power and they were able to preach christ with boldness i want to tell you our assemblies need a fresh enduement of power they do. You, you hear the preaching and, and, and it's intellectually kind of satisfying and all. but there's no power in it. And there's very little application. I've been working with our men in our assembly on Bible study method and I say to them there's three things. Observation, interpretation, application. We're good at observation. We're good at interpretation. We're hopeless at application. My wife is so helpful. I get to preach all my messages to her first. You know what she always says to me? After I've gone through this message she'll say, so what? In other words, what am I supposed to do with it on Monday morning? How's that going to help me in the crucible of life? You see, in our preaching, we need to tell people, how can this help us? I want to tell you something. Our assemblies, there's nothing wrong with the pattern. It's absolutely biblical. It's right there. But there's a lack of power. And, and the reason we're struggling is we, the prayer meeting is so neglected. The place of power. Hudson Taylor question asked, how are you going to reach China, inland China with the gospel? You know what he said? We'll go forward on our knees. Isn't that a great answer? We go forward on our knees. How are we going to win the land for Christ? Right? These people, they're all orderly, but they're not doing what God wants them to do until they invade the land. The promised land. That's when they're really functioning. They've got all the order, but unless they go into the land, they're not really being obedient. We have all the order, but are we taking our community for Christ? And how are we going to do that? Well, the first place to start, if we want to win North America for Christ, we, we, we go forward on our knees. That's what we've got to do. So, basically, um, being defiled by the dead. Um, folks, are you, are you how much time are you spending watching Fox News in comparison to reading your Bible? He said, I don't care who Sean Hannity is and all these people. i tell you something about him. A lot of these people are not saved people. I used to listen to Rush Limbaugh on the radio, and you know what? I banned him. I don't listen to him anymore. You know why? The man's not saved. And he's got all these opinions, and maybe some of them are right. I don't know. But you know what? It get me all agitated and mad, and I kind of became an angry white male kind of thing. And, and, and uh, I don't need that. <laughs> That's not going to win the world for Christ. Republicanism is not the answer to America's problems. Jesus Christ is the answer to America's problems. And so, sorry Rush, you're gone. I'm sorry if it's damaged your ratings, but you're not saved. What can you teach me? You're a dead man. I do not want to be defiled by the dead. I want to be infused by the living, right? And that's, that's, this is what we're dealing with here. And so these things have to be done. Well, then, oh boy, Um, (laughs) then there's the trespass offering. And uh, by the way, let me just say this, uh, very, very important trespass offering. These are already a redeemed people. Never forget that. They were redeemed by the Passover lamb. So we're talking about people who are already in covenant relationship with God to redeem people. But after redemption, there's something called post-conversion sin. Now maybe you've never had a problem with this, but but I have, right? Right? So how do we deal with post-conversion sin? There are people that say today that when Christ died for my sin, all of my sin was future, and so my sin has been dealt with past, present, and future, so I never have to confess my sin after getting saved. You ever heard that? It's called extreme grace. Let me tell you something, folks. If you hold to extreme grace, you have a major problem. There will never be revival without repentance. And repentance means changing my mind about my thinking, about my conduct, about whatever, and and being honest with God and admitting it. And if I never confess my sin after salvation, I'm never admitting, Lord, I I've done wrong. You see, and they, so they want to kind of get rid of First John one nine. Well, I don't want to get rid of First John one nine. I'm glad it's there. If we confess our sin if we speak the same thing that's the idea i agree with you god that what i have done is contrary to your will and if we do that it says he is faithful right to cleanse us from sin and all unrighteous and i'm thankful for that and 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 first john 1 9 means a lot to me sometimes i say lord it's me again (laughs) you know sometimes it's the same old stuff But go back to Churches of Revelation. Seven churches. Five out of seven are called to repentance. Now what about the churches in Southern California? The assemblies in Southern California. If five out of the seven, 70% need to repent, what about Southern California? What about the Bay Area? If five out of seven in, in, in Asia Minor needed to repent, what about the assemblies in the Bay How many? Do you ever, have you ever seen corporate repentance in an assembly where they just admit, Lord, we've failed? What would that look like? <laughs> we don't even know what it would look like, do we? Because we don't want to admit anything. Because we think that if I am honest as an elder, as somebody in the work of God, if, so, if I'm just honest and real, people will, will kind of look down on me. That's not what happens, it's just the opposite. People actually appreciate your authenticity and respect you more for being honest. I remember preaching one time, and and I, I was just being honest about my, some of my struggles in preaching. And a lady came up to me afterwards. She'd grown up in a, in a certain circle of assemblies, and she was just in tears. She said, "I had never ever heard a preacher ever admit that he had a problem growing up." And I thought these men were perfect, and and I thought I could never be like them. And I had these these were kind of Not just New Testament saints in the way we think it. They were like Catholic saints, halo and all. And she was so relieved to know that somebody who's preaching isn't perfect. (laughs) She only had to look. I mean, I don't know what she was thinking. But you know what I'm saying? We've got to be honest. People don't, don't feel bad when we're honest. They appreciate honesty. And God does. You know what God says? A broken and a contrite spirit thou will not despise, O Lord. God can't resist a broken and a contrite spirit. You can't resist it. And so in our assemblies, I just tell somebody in our area, Midwest, we're really concerned. We just feel like there's something wrong, there's something missing in our assemblies and we we had in January a day of prayer and fasting for for, for the testimony. And we said, this prayer meeting, we're not going to pray for sick people. We're not going to pray uh, for Aunt Maud's toe or for any of these things. We are going to pray about the problems amongst us. About, about the issue of pornography that's killing us in our assemblies, uh, uh, the lack of boldness in the gospel, uh, uh, and, and people being ashamed of the gospel of Christ, uh, uh, about bickering that's gone on for years, about, about these issues that need fixing. And I want to tell you that day of prayer and fasting, it was wonderful. There were men, grown men up there in tears crying out to God, God, unless you do something, Ichabod is written all over us. And everybody said, when do we do this again? August. We've got it coming up again. Because for once, we're getting honest and getting real. And so, there has to be this idea of dealing with sin. Now, of course, the trespass offering is a wonderful thing for you to study, but you can't do it right now because our time has (laughs) gone. This clock is on steroids, I think, is it? (laughs) Father, we're just asking that you'd help us to realize that you still are a holy God. And if we want to see blessing, we have to be serious about sin. You said that you're the Holy One that lives in the midst of your people. And we know that there's always defeat for the Lord's people when there's sin in the camp. We think of the sin of Achan, how a a little city like Ai routed the people of God because there was unjudged sin in the camp. Lord, how many of our assemblies are in defeat today because there's unjudged sin? Lord, will you help us to get real, to stop playing games with you, a holy God, and to deal with sin? Lord, I ask you to use this message however you want this morning. You're God. We just want you to speak clearly to all of our hearts. Help us, Lord, to judge ourselves so that we would not be judged. We'll give you the glory in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.